Let's pray. Lord, in these next few minutes, we pray that you'll be enjoyed. I pray for an attentiveness that's uh, bigger than I know any of these people can muster. I pray for kids, that they will be engaged, uh, that they'll be listening and feasting. I pray that they won't be a distraction to their parents. Lord, I pray um, that you'll be honored in how we spend these next few minutes. Lord, I also want to pray for another church in our community. Pray for family fellowship. Pray for uh, Paul Blue and his family. Lord, I pray for his marriage that is rich and um, that it's not easy, that he has to work for it, and that he, you are Lord and sovereign over that, that he will know that you are the Lord by the way that we work through things in their marriage. I pray that his studies are, are, uh, are full and that it spills over onto his family first and uh, then onto a, a church family. Lord, I pray that, that that's a people that is engaging you and enjoying you and, and bringing honor and glory to you in the way that they respond to what they hear. Lord, I pray that in whatever capacity possible that we can serve as teammates, not in, in competition, um, not with a spirit of division, but a spirit of uh, hope and wanting what's best for our, our sister churches in this community, for your glory and for your namesake. Uh, Lord, we pray for that this morning, too, in this setting. We just turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> We're in a study on the church right now. We are probably, uh, well, we're two, we've had two Sundays we've invested into it. This is the third Sunday. We hadn't been in a row because we were in the park last week. But we feel like we need to consider and engage what the church is and maybe kind of, as a result of that, consider what the church isn't. We're surrounded by them. The realization that anybody, any joker, could get online with 15 bucks and 15 minutes and get an ordination certificate could rent a building, get out in his garage, cut a couple pieces of wood and nail them together, fashion them together and call it a cross, slap it up to the side of the building. And we could call that a church makes us realize that we need to be attentive to what God says the church is. We don't want to be in the business of walking around going, you're a church, you're not. Yes, you are. You're not. But realizing that people move, realizing that young people grow up and you take jobs, Realizing also that sometimes people get restless. Like, I'm just looking for something different. <laughs> While I don't appreciate that mindset, I understand that that can be the way we are. A study of the church can help you understand and discern what am I looking for or what should I be happy with? I mean, really. And it can also be a tool that holds us accountable as the church to be the church if we know what God says the church is. So we're going to spend six or seven Sundays total, probably three or four more Sundays, considering what the church is. First of all, the church is a people. It's not an organization. It's not a club. And it's not a building. It's, it's more than semantics to say, I'm going to go to church. It impacts the way you think. Because when you say, I'm going to go to church, you contain what the church is to a place in time when you go there. And you contain it geographically when you go there. So it's, it, I, I am word police. I, people already give me that. I know I'm word police, fixing people all the time. You know, your, your uh, English and grammar and things like that. But I'm also hopefully lovingly addressing this. Let's not even say we're going to church. Let's say we're going to corporate worship. You can't go somewhere that you are. 
We are the church. The church is a people. It's an organism, not an organization. It's not a building. Secondly, we consider the church is an accountable people. You need to realize that the philosophy, what am I, my brother's keeper, came from a lying murderer. That's the world's view on how dare ye stay out of my business, mind your own. That, that's not the way the church operates. And then on the other hand, the church is not a bunch of meddlers either. We are our brother's keeper because of what's at stake. There's much at stake for when Christ returns the condition and beauty of the bride. That's got to be the motive of this pursuit of purity and holiness for the people of God. I need you to hold me accountable in this journey of faith. And guess what? You need me. My experience, people love accountability until they're looking down the barrel of it. But we need it. And as painful as it is, as Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, it brings righteousness. So we want to be that people that are an accountable people. Not a meddling people, but an accountable, authentic, sincere, true people who are burdened for the beauty of the bride when Christ comes back. The third thing that we are, we're going to consider today, is that the church is an accountable people who are led and leadable. Led and leadable. I want to start this message this morning with considering the nature of God. If y'all been here for a period of time, some of y'all that are new, you're going to be like, man, that's a word I've never heard before. And I don't want you to, to disconnect right now. But those of you, just maybe go back and listen to some previous sermons. A word that we learned a while back is the word perichoresis. Perichoresis is an ancient word that our early church fathers gave the character, or to use to describe the character of God, the Trinity specifically. That Father, Son, and Spirit that they are interpenetrating persons of the Trinity. And they're so intertwined and interpenetrating and interinvolved and so one that they look like a blur, yet they're still distinct persons. It looks like a dance is what they call it. Perichoresis is the word that actually, the Greek word that describes that. And while God is perichoretic, interpenetrating, interinvolved, the people of God take on his character and we are interpenetrating and interinvolved in each other's lives. That's why community should be, is because God is. That's why we want to be involved in each other's lives. Not just because somebody says, man, you need to be part of a Bible study. It's because God is part of himself. We need to be part of each other. So it's appropriate for us to consider the character and nature of God. Now, in regards to leadership, consider this. Within the Trinity, there is equality in being. Some of y'all real heady types know the word ontological. Ontology or ontological studies is a study of being and essence. This picture of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and them being equal in essence, equal in being, says that Jesus is not one-third God, and he's also not less God than the Father. He's just as much God as the Holy Spirit. Just as much God as the Father. They are equal in essence and being, yet they are not equal when it comes to functional relationship. The other persons of the Trinity are functionally subordinate to the other. Consider this. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. John chapter 14 presents some great pictures of this. John chapter 14 verse 28 Jesus says, you heard me say that I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. 
What he's talking about here and what he's talked about elsewhere in this chapter is the Father sending me and me obeying and doing what he's told me to do. While he's fully God, he's following instructions. He's being sent. While he's equal in essence, he's functionally subordinate to the Father. A great picture of this in Philippians is the the passage, though being in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but yet being in the form of God. We believe what makes us Christian is believing that Jesus is God. He's fully God. He's not one-third God. He's not a fraction of God. He's fully God, yet he is clearly functionally subordinate to the Father. While equal, the persons of the Trinity serve in different capacities and they display functional subordination. There's other pictures in regards to the Holy Spirit. In verse 26 of the same chapter, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send. Who sends the Holy Spirit? The Father sends in my name, Jesus' name. It's another picture of functional subordination. They're equal in essence, but different in function. The home, the family is another great picture of that. Hopefully the family you would expect, hopefully the church is a reflection of our God. The family in many ways is a reflection of the character of God as well. If it's a biblical model with a husband and wife, the family can reflect this same sort of relationship as the husband. And we believe what our Bible says at Crosspoint. This may be your first and last Sunday if you've been waiting to hear this. (laughs) That the husband is the head of the wife. It's in our Bibles. The husband is the head of the wife. And she is functionally subordinate to his leadership, but yet equal in being. You hear that? Equal in essence. Equal in being, yet functionally subordinate. The woman is of no less value than the man. They just serve in different roles. And the same is true of the church. We are equal, saved by grace, on level ground at the foot of the cross, but functionally there are different roles. We're going to consider what that looks like as the sermon unfolds. But when I, the thing I want to establish right up front is that leadership is one of the marks that define the church. Now, I want to go back to the very beginning. Turn to Exodus chapter 32. As you're turning there, I'm going to give you kind of a bird's eye view of humankind up to this point. <clears throat> We're going to talk about the rub. You heard the phrase, it's probably an English phrase. Here's the rub. Here's the rub we're going to consider in these next few minutes. What is the rub? If God says, okay, leadership is my design, functional subordination and functional leadership is my design and just going to be reflected in home and church, here's the rub. Okay? From the beginning, man has rebelled against God in the garden. As a consequence of the fall, woman rebels against the leadership of her husband. Cain rebels against God. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Then by the time of Noah, all mankind has rebelled against God. Here's the words in in Genesis chapter 6. Wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then shortly thereafter, there's Babel. Let us make a name for ourselves. Rebellion. Then there's Lot, Sodom, Esau. There's Joseph's brother selling him off into slavery. The story of man is a story of rebellion and resistance to God with a few little shining moments of obedience here and there. But mostly it's been a story story of rebellion and resistance. 
You would think that the nation of Israel, 400 years worth of slavery, might have removed that from their system. But we'll find otherwise here in chapter 32, beginning in verse 9. Give you a little picture of the context. Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. The nation of Israel is down at the base of Sinai. They're bored. They're waiting on Moses. Just give you a big picture. In chapter 32, verse you don't need to, to go there, although you're already on that page. You can look there. You can just move your eyes. I know that's a lot of effort. Look over. Up. The nation of Israel says to Aaron, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. We're bored. Where's Moses? We'll be in charge. You hear it? Up. Get up. We're commanding this thing right now. So they have everybody gather up their gold and they make a golden calf and they're dancing around the fire like a bunch of hooligans. And Moses is up on the top of the mountain while this is going on. Moses doesn't know any of this. And in verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. He's referring to what's going on down at the base of the mountain right there. Let's see what else he says. Let's look on at chapter 33, verse there are consequences to them dancing around the fire like a bunch of hooligans there's plagues and things like that that happen as as a result of that and then in verse 3 of chapter 33 God says go up to a land flowing with milk and honey but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you're a stiff-necked people look down a couple verses the Lord said to Moses say to the people of Israel you're a stiff-necked bunch If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Look at chapter 34, verse 9. This is the point. This is just after Moses asked God, show me your glory. God reveals to him really the backside of his essence. And then here in verse 8, you hear it again. If now Moses is interceding for this people that now he knows He's up on the top of the mountain when they're dancing around the fire like a bunch of hooligans. He had no idea what was going on. But now he's getting to see what's unfolding. He's realizing the kind of people that he's supposed to lead. And here's what he says to Moses, or to God. If now I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. Please don't bail on us as we go into this land. For I agree, it's a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. God knows this is a stiff-necked people, and Moses now knows this is a stiff-necked people. Let me give you another picture. 2 Chronicles chapter 30. Fast forward 700 years. Talking about the same people. Talking about the Israelites. 700 years later, there's a king named Hezekiah, king of Judah. Hezekiah was a good king. If you've read 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, you know the drama. It's kind of the roller coaster. Good king, bad king, good king, bad king, good king, good king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king. Hezekiah's a good king. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. According to all that David, his father, has done, he's sort of a mixture of wisdom, of the wisdom of Solomon and the obedience and passion of David. And Hezekiah says, man, let's rediscover the temple. Let's rediscover worship. Let's rediscover the Passover. That's where we are in chapter 30. He's appealing to this, net, this consistently disobedient, stiff-necked people. And here's what he says in verse 8. He says, Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord. Come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. 
Serve the Lord your God that his fierce anger may turn away from you. He's appealing to a stiff-necked people not to be what they consistently are. And you can see what the flip side of being stiff-necked is by his appeal. Don't be stiff-necked, but instead yield yourselves to the Lord. Come to his sanctuary and serve the Lord your God. He's appealing to them. Let's see if anything happened. Turn to Acts chapter 7. It's kind of bad news. This is fast forwarding 800 years now. Okay, it's about 1,500 years before Christ that Moses and led the people out of Egypt into the end through the wilderness. It's about 700 years later that Hezekiah reigned. And about 800 years later, Stephen is preaching a sermon, his last. And here's what Stephen says at the end of his sermon. Chapter 7, verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. It's bad news for Israel. Man, their character of this people is they are stiff-necked. Other words we could use, rebellious, obstinate, hard-headed, A little phrase that comes to mind that I see sometimes in myself and in others, perpetually and terminally critical. We can use one word to replace it with, and the nation of Israel did a lot. Grumbling. The nation of Israel is hard to lead. The bad news for us is that Israel's story is a micro version of man's story. It reveals the heart of man and proves that natural man... Now hear this phrase, without some sort of drastic change. Natural man, without some sort of drastic change, is rebellious and resistant and obstinate and hard-headed and hard to lead and stiff-necked. Now we're going to take a closer look at this. Turn to Numbers chapter 11. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's like showdown at the OK Corral. Actually, turn to Numbers chapter 16. I'm going to give you some context as you're going there. <clears throat> We're going to take a closer look at the nation of Israel in the, in the Exodus and the wilderness journey. And I want to show you that this people and this environment was saturated with subversion. Saturated with rebellion. It starts, at least for the little place, little area we're going to look, is in Numbers chapter 11. You can just look at the headings if you want to look back a couple pages. The people complain. What they're complaining about is, we're so tired of manna. Can you give us something else to eat? And they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And that's when they got quail. Okay, Numbers chapter 12. Just, just look at the beginning of it. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman, and they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? That's a key phrase. Has the Lord indeed only spoken through Moses? Who's this joker? Who is he? Do we even need him? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it, and the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. What unfolds there in the next few verses is that Miriam has leprosy for the next 10 days. 
Aaron looks at Miriam. The cloud of the Lord actually descends and then it goes away. And Aaron looks over at Miriam and says, Whoa, her nose is falling off. She's got leprosy. Please remove this from us. And God says, Not for 10 days. Send her outside the camp, for she's rebelled against God's leadership. And then look at chapter 14. Look at the heading. The people rebel. It's just this constant theme throughout this book and throughout this journey through the wilderness. Rebellion. Look at verse 2. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to, call, to fall by the sword? What they're grumbling about now is the scary people in the promised land. Joshua and Caleb saying, man, let's go whip their behinds. We can take them. And they're like, oh. Other people saying, no, they're scary. They're giants. Eek. So they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron. And now we're going to move into chapter 16. So get ready. I'm going to give you a little bit of context just so you can appreciate what's unfolding in chapter 16. Listen to this passage. Now you need to think. If you're lazy, you're not going to get this. If you think, you're going to get this, and it's going to be awesome. Exodus chapter 31 says this. Don't turn there. Just listen. I want you to number 16. It says, the Lord said to Moses, this is when, ironically, this is when they're dancing around the fire like a bunch of hooligans with, with the golden calf. God speaking to Moses. He says this. He says, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath. Hear this as if you're an Israelite. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Now listen to this next sentence. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Gulp. Everyone who profanes the Sabbath shall be put to death. That's a necessary ingredient before we engage Numbers chapter 16. Since you're right there on that page, just kind of move your eyes over to chapter 15, verse 32. I have a little heading there that says, A Sabbath breaker executed. Uh-oh. The plot is about to develop. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, he made it clear right here, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Sounds pretty harsh, right? You go blowing off a Sabbath and man, you get stoned. It sounds harsh to somebody else. Let's see what happens here in chapter 16. There's a man named Korah. You're going to meet Korah and a couple other dudes. Korah wasn't real savvy with what unfolded with this Sabbath breaker. This was just a little bit too harsh. You went a little bit too far this time, Moses. Listen to what unfolds. Now Korah, the son of Izar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the other two key figures, the sons of Eliab and On, the son of Peleth, son of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And they said to them, you have gone 
too far. He's just picking up sticks. What's up? What's the big deal, man? He just wanted to cook some manna and some quail. He just needed some fire. He's just out there picking up sticks. And we're going to stone him to death? You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy. It's interesting. These guys are Levites. And Levites were set apart as holy. God's design also. And they're like, you know what? Who says we're set apart? Why don't we just do our own thing is what Korah is saying. All in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his, who is, who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. Moses says, oh, no, you didn't. You've gone too far. You have come up against God's leadership. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you, you Levites, from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he's brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it listen, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered. It looks like they're against Moses and Aaron. He says, no, you're against the Lord. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. And they said, who? We're not going to come up to you. It is a small thing that you brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey. I'm severely unimpressed, Moses. To kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself a prince over, our, over us. Moreover, you've not brought us into a land flowing of milk and honey yet. Where are the goods you promised us? Will you put out the eyes of these men? We're not going to come up. Who are you, Moses? Stiff-necked and rebellious. And Moses was very angry. This is a great picture. If you want to know what be holy and do not sin looks like, that's what it looks like righteous anger. And he said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them and I have not harmed one of them. Moses says to Korah, be present you and all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow. And let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it. And every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers. You also and Aaron, each his censer. This is like showdown. You hear the tumbleweed rolling across. They're about to throw down. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. You hear this whole crowd has come up against Moses and Aaron now. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. 
I'm so done with this stiff-necked people. And they fell on their faces. Here's a great picture of mediators. It's a great picture of the gospel. You want to know what Christ is doing on your behalf? Look at what Moses and Aaron are doing right here. Oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, You better get away from their tents. Please depart from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives and their sons and their little ones. I'm just imagining they had their hands on their hips. What you going to do, Moses? And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, nation of Israel, y'all listen up. If these men, Korah, Nathan, or Dothan and Abiram, if these dudes die of old age, heart attacks and atherosclerosis or whatever else you want to give them, diabetes, then I'm not God's man. But if the Lord creates something new, if you see something unfold in the next couple minutes that you've never seen before, in fact, if you see the ground open its mouth and swallow them up with all that belongs to them and they go down into shoal, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord via his leadership. You got to hear that. You'll know these men have despised the Lord via his leadership. And as soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. <laughs> Kaboom. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. I wonder if they just didn't hear like this big burp then. The earth just burped after it swallowed up these families. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry. And he said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. The other guys that had teamed up with Korah and his crew were consumed by fire. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze. Go get those metal things they were holding. And then scatter the fire far and wide. For they have become holy. It's so ironic right here because Korah in the beginning said, hey, we're all holy. Who says it's just the Levites that are set apart? We say everybody's holy. And here God makes them a sacrifice and says, now they are. Now they're holy. Here they go. As for the censors of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar. For they offered them before the Lord and they became what they asked for. Holy. Sacrifices sublimated into the nostrils of God. Thus they shall, shall be assigned to the people of Israel. So Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers which those who were burned had offered and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar to be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord lest he become like Korah and his company as the Lord said to him through Moses. I wish that was the end of the story. Uh, and then uh, Israel from, from then on have lived happily ever, ever after with God. But let's read the next sentence. But on the next day, 
Not years later, after they forgot about Korah and that loud burp that the earth gave after it swallowed him up. On the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Like, man, are you kidding? Is this a joke? You, and, and they're saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. They might as well say, you have gone too far. Man, I'd be looking for a place to stand. It wasn't on ground. <laughs> Give me some place that's not going to be consumed right now. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it. Uh-oh. God's showing up. And the glory of the Lord appeared, and Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces, and Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from the altar, and lay incense on it, and carry it quickly to the congregation, and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun." So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living. There he is, a gospel again. And the plague was stopped. But listen at the consequences. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 people besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. What must they have said when they showed up, Aaron and Moses? It's been a rough couple days leading this people, hadn't it? <coughs> Whew, you think we can make the rest of this journey? This is a stiff-necked bunch. Do you smell the stench of 14,000 plus 250 plus Korah's family, Dothan's family, and Abiram's family? Whew! I'm not sure I'm up for leading this hard-headed, rebellious, obstinate, perpetually, terminally critical, grumbling, hard-to-lead people. This is hard stuff. The thing that blows my mind in this whole story, all these people perished because one man led a rebellion against God's people, against God's leadership. One man, a man named Korah, like a little virus. It got contagious and it went to Dothan and Abiram, and then their families, and then they recruit the 250. And then before long, the whole nation is grumbling and complaining and up against God's leadership. The thing that really blows my mind is these people walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. These people saw hail. They saw flies. They saw frogs. They saw the Nile turn to blood. They heard the wind of the destroyer at midnight as it took the firstborn of, the, of Egypt. They heard all Egypt cry out as they look even in their livestock pens where the firstborn are dead. They saw all that. They saw Sinai quake. They heard God speak. They ate quail, manna that drops out of the sky. And yet they're complaining against the most humble man on the face of the earth. When I look at this situation where we are 2,000 years after Christ, I'm thankful that God's got his big mighty hand on the church. I'm amazed that we don't see a whole lot more of it. When I think about what happened here to, God, to this man, this incredibly humble man, and these people that saw these incredible things, and yet they grumbled and complained, God's got a sweet hand of protection on the church. Tell me the most divisive, angry, grumbling, hard-to-lead church in the country, and they're not this bad. And I'll tell you what's happened. That drastic thing that I told you that's got to happen to the heart is the Holy Spirit's moved into the heart of man. And I'm so thankful for that in the church. 
So thankful for that in the church. But one of the things that's true as we consider this example, as we look at this example up close, is it does reveal to us the natural heart of man. As we consider Korah and Dothan and Abiram and these 250 it shows the natural man is hard to lead. I think, I, I like to think in terms of animals. My dad's a veterinarian, so I've always kind of grown. I think we're cats. You know what I'm talking about. It's some of y'all that have cats or if you have dogs. You call your dog and he's like, oh, okay. And he runs over there and he follows orders and he's eager to do whatever you want. You call your cat and he looks at you and goes, huh? I'll come over there when it's my idea. Humankind is cats. It takes the Holy Spirit's work in our lives for us to even begin to look like a dog. (laughs) That's the rub. But the church is to be different. The church is to be different. The church is an unnatural environment, not led by the natural man. Not natural man filling the pews, filling the congregation, filling the people. It's a a people made up of pilgrims, made up of sojourners who are living by another kingdom, who are living by another ethic, who have something else driving us other than the natural man. The church is a people who reflect the character of God equal in being with functional leadership and subordination. The church is to be led. And the church is to be led by elders. Some of y'all who are like me, grew up in a very traditional uh, Southern Baptist setting in my case, and I wouldn't even know known what an elder was. We call them pastors. It's the same thing. If some of y'all are wondering, man, why don't they have pastors? We do. We have three of them. We have three elders. Paul uses them interchangeably. Pastors, elders, overseers, shepherds, even bishops. It's the same thing. He uses them interchangeably. When he gives lists of what they are, he interchanges those words. And while we may land on the place of elder, we're going with what seems to be the consistent theme of calling them elders. The church is to be led by elders. And I want to show you why this is such an important thing for us to consider as we're defining what the church is. Turn to Acts chapter 14. give you a little bit of context here. Paul and Barnabas are church planters. They're starting churches in what's now modern-day Turkey. And the cities listed specifically are Iconium, Lystra, and Antioch. Listen to what's unfolding here in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel in that city, that's Derbe, they made, and, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And let's look what they do in Antioch when they return. They've already been there preaching the gospel. They returned, strengthening strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And here's what else they do. And when they had appointed elders for them in every city with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They're strengthening the souls, encouraging them, preparing them for tribulation, and they're appointing leadership. Let me just tell you, 
There's no mention of them building a building with a steeple. Some of y'all who've gone to foreign lands and done that, nothing wrong with that. But that's not planting the church. That's building a building. There's no mention of them building a, church, a building with a steeple. They didn't put up a playground or give some money. They appointed leadership. It's leadership that goes with the newly planted church. Imagine this. It would be like someone going to a place or a country or a land that needed some food and then getting a tiller and going out and tilling up some ground and then go get a good seed, like a genetically engineered seed at Texas A&M or something. It's like, man, it's like super seed, like Jack and the Beanstalk seed. We're going to get some of that seed and we're going to put that in the ground and then watering it and fertilizing it. But then they've got to leave and go do that for another place. So they look around and they go, okay, who can tend to this plot of soil? Who can guard this seed and make sure it's not taken by the ravens? Who can water it? Who can fertilize it? Who can be here to walk with the produce when God gives the increase? That's what elders do. That's what they're doing here when they're planting the church. He told Timothy the same thing. If you look at the book of Timothy, go ahead and turn there. Timothy and Titus, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus are called the pastoral letters. They're letters written to young pastors slash church planters. And the book of 1st Timothy has some real specifics as what a deacon and an elder should look like, two different offices. And it's interesting. He's writing to Timothy, who's a pastor and a planter and evangelist. And he gives them some specifics in chapter 3 of here's what an overseer looks like. If we get time this morning, if we get to it, and if we have time, I'll read these. But for the sake of just the big picture right now, let me show you this. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, okay, here's what an overseer slash elder slash pastor slash bishop looks like. And then he gives some qualifications for deacons. And then in the next breath... Look down in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things. What things? The things I just told you about elders, overseers, pastors, and then deacons. So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. You can't even behave without leadership. I'm writing these things so you'll know what to put in order is what we're about to see. Look at Titus chapter 1 verse 5. It's just over the next couple pages. Titus was a, a church planter, pastor in Crete. You probably heard the term before, you Cretan. That's an old, that's, that's ages old, that phrase. That, that was actually kind of a, a, a saying about Crete. They were so messed up in Crete. I mean, I can think of other places that I won't say because some of y'all might live there. <laughs> and over in chapter, chapter 1, verse 5, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You don't even know how to behave without leadership. You can't even have things in order without leadership. Man, as I engage these passages, I'm just, it's just so clear that the church is to be led. And the flip side of that is the church is to be leadable. Look in the next book in your Bible, Hebrews chapter 13. As the church is to be led, the church is to be leadable. 
Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. You could put grumbling in there. <laughs> if we're reading the nation of Israel into this, for that would be of no advantage to you. Think about this. If leaders are to have to give an account for their people, you can't be held responsible for something over which you have no control. Some people are like, hey, man, I'm okay with leadership as long as you're not in control. <laughs> if I'm going to be accountable for leading this body, along with Steve and Brad, we've got to have some control. Otherwise, how could you possibly hold anybody accountable? Leaders are to lead. Elders are to church as pilots are to passengers on a plane. As I was preparing this earlier, I actually had in my notes as passenger, or no, as a pilot is to a plane. And then I'm like, no, the church isn't a vehicle. The, the, the people of God are not a vehicle. You're fellow passengers with us. So as a pilot is to passengers on a plane, as a driver is to fellow passengers in a car, as a captain is to voyagers on a ship, as engineers are to passengers on a train, without leadership, all of these vehicles are dangerous. They careen out of control. You ever seen a, an unmanned car? Like somebody parks and it falls out of gear? goes blowing across the road there? I've seen that before. You talk about out of control. You ever seen an unmanned church? Or unmanned church? Unled church? Can you say careen? Each of these vehicles requires someone, ideally a crew at the helm. And that crew without the church is the council of elders. Without it, it reminds me of the character of Israel when they had no king. There was no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Can you say mayhem? The church is an unnatural environment where a council of elders lead and God's people follow. Let me just say something as a side note before we continue. I suspect that some of y'all right now are going, man, I'm okay with leadership. But I, I, he, he needs to be somebody I can really, you know, respect and follow. When I consider Moses, and I consider the most humble man on the face of the earth, and how the nation of Israel grumbled against him, I realize that it's got to take this outside work in the heart of man for you to follow anybody. What I've found about leadership is that most people, this is the way most people really are in practice, in application when it comes to leadership. I'm okay with the notion of leadership as long as that person is leading me in a direction that I already want to go. Let me tell you something. That's not called leadership, and that's not called followership. That's just an escort. Some of y'all want an escort. And my, my granddaddy was a chaplain. I love chaplain ministry. But let me tell you something. That's called a chaplain. That's somebody that's going with you and ministering to you as you go your own way. An elder is to lead you in a direction that sometimes you may not want to go. That's the real test of leadership and the test of followership. I want to show you what this leadership looks like. We have a few minutes, and I think y'all are attentive enough to engage this. It'll be brief. First of all, this leadership is plural. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, just listen, but don't disengage. 
Acts chapter 14. I want to show you this leadership is plural. And I'm coming from a point of view of a guy that grew up in a church with one pastor. I spent most of my life in a church with one pastor and then a staff. But in practice, the pastor was the man. And I'll tell you, God's done amazing things with that. (laughs) Thankfully, he does do some good things with broken stuff, i.e. all of us, hopefully. But that's not ideal. That's not God's best. I want to show you that ideally we're talking about plural leadership. The passage we just read, Acts chapter 14, verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Notice it doesn't say when they had appointed an elder for them in every church. It's plural picture. They appointed elders for them in every church. Acts chapter 15, verse 22. This is the Jerusalem council. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church, singular, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. The church in Jerusalem, singular, with plural leadership, elders. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, here plural, of the church to come to him. Elders, plural leadership, one church. You don't have to turn there, but you may be able to recall this passage in James where somebody's sick. Is anyone among you sick? Anyone among you? Have him call for the elders that they may lay hands on him and pray for him and that he may be healed. Leadership in the local church is to be plural. And I want to tell you too, it makes for a sweet continuity. One of the worst things that ever happened to the church is this single pastor model where he gets promoted. The Lord's called me to a bigger church that just happens to pay better. When that happens every couple years, what happens to that people? Turmoil. Man, plural plural leadership makes for a continuity that's just sweet. If something happens to me, if I get hit by a car out on my bicycle, two dudes that share the same heart that press on. And man, we have a funeral and then we move on. And it's good. Continuity. It makes for a wisdom that's beyond any one man. I don't know all things. Steve doesn't know all things. Brad doesn't know all things. When we meet together and we engage some things, there's a wisdom that comes out of us that's greater than any single one of us, and it humbles every one of us. Leadership is to be plural. It's a complement of gifting and wisdom that makes for some greater than their parts. Secondly, leadership is to be qualified. Back to that 1 Timothy passage, I'll just read it for you. You don't need to go there. A saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. The office of elder is just not for anybody. That's a high standard. It's not for anybody. The world's view would be just like Aaron's was with Moses, Aaron and Miriam. Who's this guy? Hadn't God spoken to us too? It'd be just like Korah. You've gone too far. All of us are holy. 
Who are you to be set apart as an elder slash pastor, shepherd, teacher? Who are you? I can do what you do. We don't need you. This picture right here is qualification. And it's thick and rich and long. And it's a heavy examination involved to consider if someone is qualified to be an elder. I also need to point out it's a man. A husband of one wife is a husband of one wife. It's a man. There's a possibility that there could be room for a diakonos or a diakonus, a woman deacon, but not an elder. The role of elder is reserved for a man. So this leadership is to be plural. This leadership is to be qualified. Third, this leadership is to be accountable. I'll just show you right there on the same page. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You can understand from that passage that you can and should admit a charge if you have two or three witnesses against an elder. In fact, you're encouraged to admit a charge against an elder if they're unaccountable in some way. That's the beauty of plural leadership is we're accountable to each other. But that's also the beauty of what our Bible tells us in this design that if some of y'all have something against one of us with two or three witnesses, man, you've got to bring it. For the sake of the beauty of the bride, you've got to bring it. If we are unrepentant and unresponsive and unaccountable in some area, I want to know that. I need you to hold me accountable in what I'm teaching, in what I'm preaching, in what I'm living, in what I'm saying. We are accountable to you. We are accountable to God. Next, we are involved with his people. 1 Timothy, or excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 5. Listen to this. Paul says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I love the imagery of the flock. I'm going to end with one more thing, but I want to read this passage to you from a book called The Reformed Pastor. For those of you super-duper Calvinists, that's not what this book is about. Not, not against that, but it's not a Reformed in terms of theology. It's reforming the pastorate. Some of you are scared to read a book like this because you're against something that might have to do with Calvinism. You ought to read it if you want to be a better pastor. Or you want to identify a better pastor. He says, take heed to all the flock. It's an old, old version of what we just read. He says, all the flock, or every individual member of our charge. To this end, it's necessary that we should know, Steve, Ben, Brad, you future shepherds, you future elders, future pastors, current daddies. Hear this. That we should know every person that belongeth to our charge. For how can we take heed to them if we do not know them? We must labor to be acquainted, not only with the persons, but with the state of all our people, with their inclinations and conversations. What are the sins of which they are most in danger, and what duties they are most apt to neglect, and what temptations they are most liable to? For if we know not their temperament or disease, we are not likely to prove successful physicians. I want to know y'all like that. Man, I know Steve does. I know Brad does. We want to know y'all like that. You got to make yourself knowable (laughs) in that way. 
to where someone can actually shepherd you. That This leadership is plural, qualified, accountable, involved. And lastly, and most importantly, this leadership better be led by Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 says, The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. These men have got to be worshipers. Men who are blown away by the gospel. Men who are enjoying Christ, if they're to be proper leaders in this thing called the bride. If we are to be the church and plant the church where we discern the church is weak or absent, we need elders to lead and we need people to follow. And from those who follow, we must raise up more elders to go where we plant the church or to join those who are currently serving. That's what we want to be about. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your design. I'm thankful that it's different from the world. I'm thankful that it stands in stark contrast to the world. Lord, I pray that we can be people who walk in this faithfully and obediently, responsibly. We're thankful that Christ is the head of this church. I'm thankful for plural leadership. I'm thankful that you have guarded this body from me making decisions on my own. Lord, I'm thankful for a church that is remarkably responsive. A people that are remarkably, amazingly, gracefully obedient. And Lord, I'm thankful for your amazing sovereign hand on the church right now. When we just look at old Israel, when we consider the new Israel, what you have guarded even, guarded even the most rebellious church from pales, pales in comparison to the old Israel. Lord, we are thankful for this drastic change in the heart of man called the Holy Spirit. We worship you. We are so grateful for your grace and your mercy to give us this indwelling God that changes us, that guides us, that breaks us down and crucifies us that we may live and look and live like Christ. Lord, as Christ obeyed you, we pray that we obey you. And we obey your leadership. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to have the Lord's Supper right now. Just a a brief word regarding the Lord's Supper. If you're crossways with a brother, I encourage you not to take this Lord's Supper unless you're sitting next to that brother slash sister slash wife, husband. Christy and I get more fights on, not anymore because I'm busy on Sunday morning, but before I was doing this, Sunday mornings, man, the devil's busy. Some of y'all may be crossways before you stepped foot in the doors this morning. And I urge you right now is a great time to reconcile. Lean over to your husband or your wife and say, I'm sorry for being a horse's behind. I have to say to Christy all the time. All the time. So if some of you are like, man, I don't want to have to say that or I shouldn't have to say that. Unless you're made of something different than me, you probably need to say that. And the reason you want to say that because you want to eat with God. You can't dine with God if you're crossways with a brother. God says, go take care of that conflict with your brother and then come back and offer your offering at that point. So I urge you right now, as I pray, I'm going to pray as the elders are coming up. And Actually, I'm going to read a passage and I will be prayerful as you're hearing music, as this bread and this cup are being passed out. And be prayerful and pray about if there's somebody you need to reconcile with. And I encourage you to do that. It's a great time. Thus, doing this every week now just gives us an opportunity to have a really short account with each other.
Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, In the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it's not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, as we eat broken bread, I pray that we are mindful of a broken body that was broken for us. I pray that the sobriety that Coleman exhibits, lad, that we baptized this morning, that that would be the sobriety about real, genuine faith that each of us has, that we're not just club members, not part of an organization, but a real part of a people. Remembering and actually celebrating that our Lord was crucified. His body was broken for us. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for this time we've had together this morning. And pray that you've been enjoyed. What I pray in these next couple minutes as we dedicate children to this body. Pray that there's a, a seriousness and intentionality about engaging young people. And raising up tomorrow's church to worship. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Steve? Um, I wanted to share a couple of verses with you. Um, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. In Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So from the Word and clearly other scriptures, we see that the responsibility and accountability to train and discipline our children falls on you, Dad, and falls on you, Mom. And being part of the church, it falls on the church. Uh, what we want to do is come alongside you in that and be a part of that. This uh, dedication we're having this morning is just we're going to have families come up so the body can get a look at you and see who you are, come alongside, and covenant together to do these things, uh, to pray for you. Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege to serve, to train, to grow, to teach for your sake and for your glory. Father, we pray that all we do in the lives of these children would put Christ on display and bring honor and glory to your name.
Father, pray for these parents. Uh, Father, as they encounter whatever circumstances, situations may come the way of their family, Father, they hold fast to you, persevere in the faith, uh, be in your word consistently for your name's sake. Father, for these small group leaders, deacons, elders, Father, we pray that you would lead us and guide us by your word in and through it for your name's sake and for your glory. Father, we thank you for this time. Pray that you would bless these families and bless this body for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.